This is Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gettler. And this is episode 48 in our series for 2014. And today's date is Friday the 12th of December. And Leon, what's on the schedule this week? We have an absolutely terrific interview with uh, Greg Taylor. He talks about his mobile payments company, Clip. It's very, it's fascinating what to, what he's doing. Really interesting. And then we're going to talk to economist Saul Eslake all about the Murray report into Australian banks. And uh, I think Saul thinks it's probably a bit overdue. That's right. That's right. So anyway, let's first of all talk to Greg Taylor. And I should point out we spoke to him on rather flaky Skype line. So I apologise for the quality of the audio, particularly at the uh, start of the interview. Greg Taylor, tell us about Clip. It's been shaking up the multi-billion dollar hospitality industry. Tell us about it and how does it work? Clip's an app that integrates directly to the existing point-of-sale systems in the venue that enables customers to open, view, pay and share their bar tab or restaurant bill in seconds. So it's uh, in about nearly 300 venues around the country now. Um, and it's certainly been uh, a, a bit of a roller coaster, you might say, in the last couple of, yeah, particularly few months, uh, bringing on lots and lots of new venues, but also new customers as well. So what sort of venues are we talking about here? Oh, we've got a mix. So we've got 300 nationally. Um, and recently, uh, last last week, we announced that we signed uh, the Australia's biggest pub group, the Woolworths and ALH um, group of pubs, which have just over 350 pubs in their group. So we range from, from all types of pubs, and from, from really large groups down to really small bars, like some of Australia's small bars, um, such as Bullet and Place or Lobo Plantation. Um, and then we've got you know bars, quite iconic ones in Melbourne, like Cookie Bar, as an example. But we've got a national footprint of venues, um, and that, that 300 uh, is spread pretty much all over the country. So how does it actually work for me as a customer? So what you do is it's a free app that's on Android and iPhone. You download the app, um, then you create an account, and then you connect a credit card through our PayPal secured technology. Once you've done that, using location services, you find a venue that you're in, let's call it, say, Cookie Bar, um, and then you say, we'd like to open a tab. Um, once you do that, what we do then is we securely talk to the point of sale system in the venue. Um, the customer will then set a limit. So what it enables you to do is control your spend, um, and so you might set a tab limit of $100. You can increase it at any point. Um, and then what will happen is that we do a pre-authorization on the fund. The venue likes that because the, the funds are then guaranteed on their side. Um, and then from there, um, it's as simple as a tab number appears on the customer's phone, which you present to the bar staff when ordering. And that then just is, is effectively uh, replacing the bit of plastic card that you get when you open a tab in a normal bar. Yeah, so, so basically all you need to do now is just flash the tab number on your phone to bar staff or at the table when you're paying, um, and the bill actually then appears on your phone. And how is it paid? Is it paid through PayPal or...? Well, you can add multiple different credit cards. So we accept all the, all the standard types of cards, Visa, MasterCard, American Express, or you can use PayPal as a payment option. Um, so effectively enables you to, to use the, uh, the app to, to pay um, with, 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 with whichever card you've chosen to add as a payment source. PayPal would be more secure though, wouldn't it? Well, it, whether it's we use the... Uh, whether you enter a Visa card or a, or a MasterCard as an example, we actually use all of PayPal's uh, SDK or software um, in the background to process. So either way, it's using the same technology. So they're, they're very similar in, in, in that regard. Would you be looking to uh, join in on the Apple Pay uh, system when it comes? I think Apple Pay is a, a, um, a great 
great invention and it will certainly drive two things for us. It'll drive awareness of mobile payments, but more so it'll it's an enabler of mobile payments because that's effectively another payment source. So instead of just having Visa, Master, Amex and PayPal, people who now use to pay with Apple Pay. And so I think it actually potentially could be more secure because it's the only one out of those payment types that will currently use biometrics as a source of verification, so i.e. the, the thumbprint or the fingerprint which is used to unlock the phone now. So I think it, it'll add that extra level of security to online payments which no one else currently has in the marketplace. It also uses a one-time uh, code rather than a credit card number, doesn't it? Yeah, correct. So it's basically um, encrypted and there's, there's one number on each side um, through the gateway. So, yeah, it, it's a slightly different approach to the, the payment method, um, but I think it will certainly, once it's adopted, will, will create mass scale across the many different payment industries and sources as well. So I think it's a, it's a great thing and it's a big shot in the arm for mobile payments in general. So how do customers take to it? It's been really, really good. Like our focus for the last sort of 12 months has really been growing out the venue side, but we've seen an enormous amount of, of user growth, particularly around August 1 this year. So August 1 was when, um, as you're probably aware, the signatures were phased out on credit cards as a form of verification. Um, so what it meant is that uh, as of August 1, uh, if a customer left a credit card behind um, for the tab at the end of the night, before August 1 or prior to August 1, the, the venue would just charge the card and the customer would have to come back in. So what's happened as of August 1, um, meaning that the bars can't take that money at the end of the night, so the bars now want the customers to use this form of technology. Um, and we saw our numbers increasingly 300% um, the day that the signatures were phased out. So it's been a, an ongoing uh, growth trend for us, but obviously the more venues we have, the more users we get. Um, and both of those are growing exponentially at the moment. Would you be looking to go into other areas than entertainment, pubs and bars and things like that, so go into uh, retail stores, 7-Elevens, this sort of thing? There's no reason why the technology couldn't do it. Um, it we, we always take the view that we need to understand what problem we're solving. So in the, in the hospitality space particularly, payment is quite a pain point for both sides, the venues and for the customers. So in a bar, whether it's be handing over your driver's license or credit card, or even paying $2.50 to get cash out at the ATM, um, or on the, the, on the venue side, the time taken to split a bill, as an example. So on both sides of the equation, we certainly solve problems, um, and our mandate is to work within the hospitality space and do that very well and solve problems on both sides. Uh, can you see yourselves moving into, say, hotels, into hotels, like people and motels, people staying overnight at places? Um, look, there's no reason it can't be, because ultimately when you do check into a hotel, you do a pre-authorization on a credit card. So the, the same type of technology could work very well. Um, there, there is fragmentation in that space um, in the hotel arena, um, but our view on it, again, is that, I mean, it's certainly an area that we could... Um, pivot into down down the path, but at this stage, you know the the, the bar hospitality space, um, including restaurants, is, is 38 billion in Australia. And you compare that to say the taxi industry in Australia, which is five billion. It's it's an enormous industry and, and something that we just want to get certain parts of that right and then expand out from them. Now, I mean, conceivably though, uh, uh, this is all over Australia. 
Correct. Yeah. So we, we've got a um, our mix of venues is national. So we've got um, coverage in every national city. Um, and surprisingly, like we get some 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 coverage in in areas such as you know, Central Coast, um, Upper Gosford, uh, Newcastle, etc. And we find that those, those venues perform particularly well. I think it's because there's um, such a, a big uptake of, of technology, and it's quite a, a community where. Everyone, yeah, the, the 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 world is small up there, and people talk, and we get we finally get quite a bit of traction in those sort of um, you know areas outside, which you know typically most people might think you might not um, due to the uh, the level of uptake of, of technology, but we've seen it being quite the opposite. So I mean, so where do you see this going? So so we need to go out our venue side. So we're, we're now with the ALH deal on board. We're at nearly 700 venues. So there's 14,000 in Australia that, that would suit our technology. So we certainly need to fill as many of those um, venues up with clip as, as possible. Um, and that really just comes down to consumer marketing and consumer engagement. And, and we're, we're, we're embarking on that process now. And, and certainly the signs are very, very strong in terms of um, uptake usage and rates. So, for example, um, the average tab spend that we've had um, recently has been growing, and that's been purely because of people's confidence in the product. Um, and we do conduct surveys with, with customers, and and you know, the first time they use the product, they they want to obviously know that it works. And when you're dealing with money, so you have to be very people generally adopt a, a cautious process um, approach. Sorry to to using something for the first time. Um, but we're now seeing as people use it, they become more confident with the product as well. So it's certainly driving, um, you know, more usage and repeat usage for us. Greg, what's your business model? Do you, is it a fee for service or a percentage or how does it all work? Well, we're actually a merchant. So effectively, at the end of the day, you, the, the venues accept Visa, MasterCard, Cash, Amex. They now accept Clip. So we take a percentage on every transaction, um, just like the banks do. Now, do you see this expanding overseas? Yeah, but in the overseas market's an interesting one for us. Um, obviously, in order to take the technology overseas, you need to integrate to the point of sale system. Um, and some of our, our point of sale partners here in Australia do have quite a large footprint overseas in some specific markets, which we're currently exploring. So um, certainly it, it's right, uh, and then the technology can go everywhere. Um, but our view is, is to bed down Australia and win that race. So what time frame are we talking about? Here. I think we'll, we'll certainly be in the space you know, early to, to mid next year um, where we'll start to look into those and, and a couple of particular key strategic markets um, that we're, we're in the process of now identifying. Um, but I think, yeah, sort of towards the middle of next year, we'll certainly look to expand and, and, and gain an international footprint. Greg Taylor, thank you very much for your time. No worries. Appreciate that. Thanks, guys. Well, online trading, um, electronic payments, mobile wallets, all this is all on the way, isn't it? Exactly, and it's going to revolutionise the whole receipt management system, I think. And uh, you put a bit of a frighteners on the banks as well. I think so too. And now uh, we've got uh, Saul Eslake. Saul Eslake, the Murray Report is out, and uh, it's a big different future for the banks. What do you think about it? Well, it does depend on the decisions the government makes in respect of the report. And I think, unlike some other reports, both to this government and the previous one, Joe Hockey's doing the right thing in allowing for a period of public debate and discussion before the government makes up its mind on what Murray has recommended. But certainly the Treasurer appears to be in favour of one of the Murray report's principal recommendations, which is that Australian banks should hold 
hold more capital as a way of minimising the risk to taxpayers of any future difficulties that a bank might run into, especially the four largest banks. The Murray Report suggests that they currently aren't in the top quartile of banks internationally by the amount of capital they hold, and his recommendation is that they should. In addition, Murray recommends that the differences between the amounts of capital that the big banks are allowed to hold in respect of their mortgage portfolios and the smaller banks who have to follow prescribed rules rather than using their own models ought to be narrowed. Both of those things would see the big banks required to hold more capital, although the share market reaction in the days since the report was released suggests that investors had actually been expecting the report to recommend they hold even more capital than it actually has. Well, the share price going up to me suggests that the banks are still in a very strong position. They they undoubtedly are, and they'll continue to be in a strong position, even if the Murray, recommendation, Murray recommendations are implemented in full. They will require the banks to hold more capital. That will make them more resilient in the face of a financial crisis or shock. But I think investors were anticipating that Murray would recommend an even bigger increase in the amount of capital that banks be required to hold than he actually has. And the banks, meanwhile, have been crying poor about it, but uh, Murray says they're lying. Well, Murray has disagreed with some of the comments that have been made by the banks. In particular, he's downplayed the impact that these higher capital requirements might have on the interest rates that banks charge. You can argue about precisely how much rates would rise depending on the amount of additional capital that banks hold and how much rates rise would also depend on the degree of competition between the banks and others who are in the lending business and Murray has some things to say about the need to foster greater competition as well. But to my mind the key point is this that the Reserve Bank takes into account any changes in the spread between the cash rate and the rates that banks charge their borrowers when it sets the cash rate. And if the banks were to be able to get away with raising their lending rates by a material amount, then almost certainly the Reserve Bank would either lower its cash rate to offset that, or when it's thinking about raising its cash rate, raise it by less than it otherwise would have. At the end of the day, provided the cash rate is comfortably north of zero, the rates that borrowers are paying from time to time are the rates that the Reserve Bank thinks that they should. Now, basically, the implication of the report is that uh, the banks have to be bolstered because uh, come the next GFC, they will not be in a stronger position as they were last time. Well, that's largely right, although it also depends on the nature of the crisis that might hit Australian banks. As it turned out, Australian banks didn't experience a significant increase in their delinquency or default rates. But what Murray's suggesting is that in different circumstances, they could. And in plausible scenarios, the banks might not have sufficient capital to absorb those losses if the amount of capital they're required to hold isn't increased. And in the absence of higher capital holdings, taxpayers might be called upon to bail out the banks in the way that they were in a number of other countries during the financial crisis. Now, Murray and others argue that the 
possibility that they might be bailed out at taxpayers' expense encourages banks to undertake more risky lending than they would have done otherwise. That's what economists refer to as moral hazard. So Murray's really trying to address two problems here. One, to reduce the risk to taxpayers in the event of a major financial crisis affecting Australian banks. And secondly, at the margin, to dissuade banks from undertaking as risky lending as they might if they thought the taxpayers would bail them out in the event of a crisis. Now, if there was another crisis, of course, Australia wouldn't necessarily have China to uh, help bolster its economy. That's absolutely right. And given the trends that we're seeing emerging in China, not only the growth rate, but the changed attitude of the Chinese authorities to using fiscal stimulus to bolster the growth rate when it slows, it's most unlikely that we would see a repetition of the stimulus that China imparted during the global financial crisis. Um, And that's one of the things that Murray explicitly acknowledges could well be different in the event of a future one. The other key point he makes is that the government's balance sheet isn't as strong as it was during the financial crisis. And while almost certainly if another crisis were to hit, one of the options that a future Australian government would have to consider would be extending a guarantee to the overseas liabilities of the banks. But the Australian government not being as in as strong a position as it was when it did that back in 2008-9 would have to be careful about how it thought about that. And that's one reason why the Murray Inquiry has separately said that the Australian government needs to make sure it does what it needs to do to keep its AAA rating. Now, what are the Murray Report's implications for tax? Well, the Murray Report made a number of observations and suggestions about the tax system, I think almost all of which I would personally endorse, but mindful that its terms of reference didn't include making recommendations about the tax system. All it said was that these were considerations that should be taken into account by the authors of the government's forthcoming tax white paper. Among the ones that I found interesting and which I certainly support and we've discussed before are the views about negative gearing that the availability of negative gearing does encourage what Murray calls and I'd agree excessive speculation and borrowing to invest in the property market he talks likewise about the excessive generosity of some of the concessional tax treatment for superannuation contributions earnings especially by high income earners he talks about the possibility of changes in dividend imputation and asserts that dividend imputation doesn't have the effect that was originally intended back in the late 1980s when it was introduced of lowering the cost of capital to Australian businesses because in a globalised world the cost of capital is set by international capital markets and therefore in that kind of world dividend imputation simply amounts to a transfer or subsidy from taxpayers who don't invest in companies paying lots of fully frank dividends to investors who do. So... Do you expect this to be incorporated into the tax white paper? Well, I think the tax white paper, as I understand the government's intention with regard to it, will be able to canvas all of these things. It won't be restricted, as the Henry Review was, for example, from uh, considering a expansion in the base or increase in the rate of the GST or the tax treatment of superannuation payouts to people over the age of 60. What the government decides to do subsequently, of course, is another matter. Uh, I'd commend the government for allowing the tax white paper process to roam far and wide. But at the end of the day, the decisions as to what, if any, changes are made to the tax system will be made by the government. Do you expect the Murray report to 
help shape the tax white paper? All I can say is that I hope it does. I think the Murray report is a well-written report at 350 pages. It's more digestible than, for example, the Henry Review was. Uh, The thinking behind the Murray uh, Review's recommendations is in most cases pretty clear. So it's a report that deserves to be widely read. And it's one whose recommendations, in my view, should be given considerable weight. And uh, the view is that uh, the findings, if they do, if they are adopted, will affect every Australian. Well, they can, they may do. Uh, Certainly by reducing the risk that future taxpayers will have to pay to bail out the financial system or individual banks in the event of failure, that will certainly affect them in a beneficial way. As I said before, if, and there's room for argument about this, implementing the Murray's recommendations regarding bank's capital holdings or requirements resulted in higher interest rates, the Reserve Bank would seek to offset that in the way that it sets the cash rate. So I wouldn't put too much weight on suggestions that this could end up resulting in higher interest rates. Uh, But many of the other recommendations that the uh, Murray inquiry has made, I think will help stimulate competition among banks, could result in greater security of returns, and hopefully will result in better quality of advice being received by investors. That would actually create a much better system. I think it would. And part of the philosophy behind the Murray Inquiry's recommendations is just recognising how important the role the financial system plays in the economy and how important it does that in a transparent, robust and rigorous way. So, Leslie, thank you very much. That's a pleasure. Thanks for having me again. So what do you think, Leon? Well, I think the big job ahead now is with tax reform, as uh, Saul flagged. Yeah. And that's what Murray was talking about. Yeah, very much. And uh, reading the uh, reading the papers this morning, it's uh, most of the experts are pretty much on side with that. So anyway, now the news. What do we got? Well, Gary, for a start, um, China's monthly trade surplus hit a record in November, rising to fifty four point four seven billion. The jump comes as but imports defies expectations, and they fell dramatically. They dropped six point seven percent from a year ago, against expectations for a rise of three point eight percent. Exports rose only 4.7%. Everyone was expecting it to rise by 8%. So China, some problems out of China, Gary. Uh, fewer fewer imports and export not rising as much as possible. Yeah, and it looks as though they're, they're suffering as the rest of us are from the lack of consumer confidence. Well, so the Chinese government has set an economic growth target of around 7.5% this year. Meanwhile, Germany's industrial output expanded less than expected in October, and that raises concerns about the strength of fourth quarter economic growth in Europe's biggest economy. And data showed industrial output rose by 0.2% on the month. That's below expectations of 0.3%. German exports decreased by 0.5% on the month. Imports decreased at a sharper pace, falling by 3.1%. At the same time, Gary, manufacturing in Britain fell 0.7%. And the markets have been hit by concerns about what's going on in Greece because there's been an unexpected decision to bring forward Greece's presidential election and people are worried about the strength of the anti-bailout Syriza party and that's hit European stocks. So we're still suffering, I guess, if you look back on it, from the the ongoing effects of the uh, GFC. That's right. And to Australia, well, we had a big report from the Grattan Institute this week warning that the housing boom and big increases in government spending on pensions and services is putting younger Australians at risk for an increasingly poorer quality of life compared with their parents' generation. This, they say, will be the first generation of kids who'll be worse off than their parents. 
And the report has recommended targeting the age pension, reducing superannuation tax concessions, shifting towards asset tax to address the nation's spiralling budget deficit. And the report shows the majority of age groups are wealthier than they were in 2003, but 25 to 34-year-olds have less wealth than people of the same age eight years ago. Which is understandable. I I don't see anything really surprising in that. Sad, but, uh, you know, there's ups and downs, aren't there? Well, the reality is the government spending on pension and services, particularly health for older households, is on the increase, Gary. Because we've got an ageing population and all those oldies vote. Now, uh, just in relation to our conversation with Saul Eslake, and let's take a look at David Murray's financial system inquiry, and that's made recommendations which were opposed by the big banks to lift their funding requirements. The banks might be forced to raise around $20 billion in additional capital to meet more stringent standards stipulated by the financial system inquiry's final report. And in the biggest review of Australia's banking and superannuation since the Wallace inquiry almost two decades ago, there were 44 recommendations, and that was chaired by the former Commonwealth Bank of Australia Chief Executive David Murray, and he said banks need to hold additional capital reserves to reduce the risk of failure in case there's another GFC. And he says if if Australia experienced a shock that was in the range experienced overseas during the global financial crisis, it would render major Australian banks insolvent in the absence of further capital raising, and that would destroy 900,000 jobs, create big falls in the gross domestic product, and based on international estimates, the cost of GDP of a crisis would to create to 300 billion to 2.4 trillion in Australia and increase government debt. And the report says that while Australia's resilience to the GFC reflected the strength of the financial services sector, many factors came into play. That include the government's balance sheet and Chinese resource demand that won't be there in the next crisis. And that's a pro- that's a worry. Well, it is, and I think as David Murray said, the uh, reserves held by the Australian banks, in fact, are lower than most of the big banks overseas. That's right. And Murray says that the bank, any banking system shortfall shouldn't be funded by taxpayers. It's made two proposals that might raise costs for the major banks by billions and potentially hit their profit margins and dividends, but also help smaller banks compete. Now, key finding in the report is that Australia's big banks sit only in the middle of the road by international standards in the amount of capital they hold to cover potential loan losses. In reaching this finding, the F- FSI expressly rejected research commissioned by the Australian Bankers Association. Another significant proposal that would hit the profitability of the Big Four and Macquarie Group and or uh, potentially results in slightly higher mortgage rates is a plan to lift the so-called risk weights on mortgages. Now, currently, five big institutions are able to use internal models to evaluate the risk of their mortgages and set aside what they see as an appropriate amount of capital cover losses. On APRA's figures, those big institutions only have to set aside capital provisions to cover just an average of 18% of their mortgage lending versus an average of 39% for regional banks, mutual banks and credit unions. And that gives the big four banks the requirement of less shareholder funds to cut potential mortgage losses and use more debt funding which is considerably cheaper and that gives them a significant cost advantage over the smaller banks and the FSI proposes putting a minimum floor on those internal generated risk weights and in doing so it's inferred that the major banks in Macquarie might not be sufficiently protecting themselves against the risk of a widespread housing downturn, and that's actually good news for the smaller banks, Gary. And 18% is a bit thin, really, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and uh, meanwhile, it's the Murray report is saying tax breaks for housing, shares and superannuation should all be scrapped, and GST applied more broadly. It also suggests a raft of tax breaks distort borrowing, and that includes negative gearing, capital gains tax concessions, and dividend imputation. 
Yeah, well, we, I think somebody said the other day that 1.4 million Australians employ negative gearing. Well, Murray's actually taking aim at this, and he says that encourages leverage and speculative investment and is a potential source of systemic risk for the financial system and the economy. He says capital gains concession are a tax subsidy for the wealthy and reducing them would lead to a more efficient allocation of funding in the economy. Well, that means one thing. All of this stuff is going to be examined in the white paper of the Abbott government coming up. Yes, it is. And if they've got the political uh, strength to uh, implement some of them, um, good. Well, Treasurer Joe Hockey says the government could take over three months to respond to the recommendations. He says they're for the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority and the Reserve Bank to consider as independent regulators. But, Gary, I think the banks will win because after the Murray report came out, their share price was up. Frankly, Gary, if uh, if cap- returns on capital from mortgage lending becomes less attractive, the banks would devote more of their capital to riskier but far higher margin business lending where the smaller banks and non-banks don't have the skills or scale to compete effectively. So I think the banks are going to be winners anyway. I'm not surprised, are you? No. Now, the other big piece of news is that, uh, according to the new Roy Morgan survey, business confidence strengthened in November the survey increased by 8.1 points or 7% to 123 points in November and it's now sitting at its highest point since January 2014, well above the four-year average of 118.2 points. I wonder if the exchange rate with the US dollar's got anything to do with that. Yeah, and meanwhile, uh, according to the ANZ job figures, employment employer demand for more staff is getting stronger. The number of job advertisements for the six consecutive months rose, the job ads on the internet and news, newspapers rose a season just at 0.7% in November and they're up 8.9% for the year. And that's mainly driven by internet job ads which rose 0.9% in the month to be nearly 10% higher than a year ago. But it's not all good news because um, uh, at the same time consumer confidence has taken a serious dive. We're back to our last situations where we were when the global financial crisis happened. Uh, according to the latest Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Survey, it fell 3.1% to its lowest level in four year months. But the big worry is the Westpac Melbourne Institute measure of sentiment. That fell by 5.7% in December. And the index reasoning is 9.91.1 points. That's the lowest score since August 2011, when we were in the middle of the financial crisis, Gary. So how much for Joe Hockey's uh, urging uh, everybody to get out there and spend, spend, spend for Christmas? Do Santa a favour. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, other big piece of news is that John Fraser has been named Martin Parkinson's replacement in the role of Treasury Secretary for a period of five years. Now, Fraser is now Chairman of UBS Global Asset Management, served as Chairman and Chief Executive of UBS Global Asset Management from 2001 to 2013. He's also been Chairman of Victorian Funds Management Corporation since 2009. He's held several senior Australian public service positions, including Deputy Secretary in the Treasury. And uh, you remember, Gary, that Prime Minister Tony Abbott announced that Parkinson would be leaving Treasury's top job soon after he was sworn in as Prime Minister. He didn't consult Joe Hockey on that. Uh, no. That was after, and that raised speculation that Parkinson had been pushed. I think that uh, he and Abbott had had uh, some exchanges of view previously, hadn't they? The other interesting, final interesting piece of news, Gary, is that the airlines are back in the black. 
Well, if you look at the oil price, if, if, if aviation fuel price is way down. It's way down, yeah. And Qu- yes, uh, look, uh, Qantas is expecting an, a return to underlying profit in the first half. Share prices up too. Well, share prices up, and all because of those job cuts and the drop in the Australian dollar and oil price. And Qantas expects to report an underlying profit before tax of between three hundred million and three hundred fifty million for the first six months of fiscal two thousand fifteen. And those job cuts had a lot to do with it, Gary. Indeed, they did. Yeah. And Virgin Australia earnings performance on the highly competitive Trans-Tasman roof has improved from loss-making to a profit as a result of accounting policy changes and its alliance with Air New Zealand. And I think the low oil price had a bit to do with it too. And so the Australian Airlines New Zealand operations posted a New Zealand $31 million, that's about $28.8 million Aussie, in profit in the year end of June 30, compared with a loss of $9 million New Zealand the year before. Yeah, and the alliance with with Air New Zealand has been pretty profitable, I think, for Virgin. Air New Zealand um, has done done extremely well in the last few years. And that's it for this week, Gary. Great, Leon. And uh, we've got our final uh, effort for... 2014 will be next week. So That's right. And next week, we've got a terrific interview with Nicholas Smedley, who runs Stellar Properties. And uh, that'll be interesting with property markets booming. And in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ or on Facebook. Stay safe, and we'll talk to you next week.